Hey guys, today's podcast is brought to you by Pamp Coffee. It is organic free trade coffee and it's roasted right here in sunny San Diego. Go grab yourself a bag, head over to etsy.com slash shop slash pamp coffee. And I don't know what you heard about me, but I'm a motherfucking P-A-M-P. That's P-A-M-P, Pamp Coffee, guys. What was it? How did it get here? Where did it come from? Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? It came from outer space to fill the world with terror. What earthly power can stop this terror? That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. The from outer space. San Diego, USA. The time is spring 2018. And this is the podcast from outer space. Enter a time and another dimension. We have in the house tonight a one Jed Groom coming to us all the way from the East Coast. As well as your fucking boy, Rob Scott. We got Adam Narlock in the house as usual. Hey guys, thanks for listening. And we got Ryan Scott. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Jed, you want to say us a little something in the mic? Hello, Earthlings. (laughs) And tonight we're getting into the Twilight Zone. Yes, um, boom, as Rob said, we've got special guests all the way from the East Coast, uh, long-time Twilight Zone connoisseur, if you will. Ah, uh, yes, yes. So we are going to dive deep, uh, take a look at the life and times of creator Rod Serling and his inception of, I think the argument can be made for the greatest TV series that ever was. Almost definitely. And, um, you know, I mean, I know for me personally, I'd say this was the best thing ever to grace cable TV. And, uh, you know, it's really just proved how many people I think when it came out were into, you know, paranormal, unexplained and, you know, philosophical quandaries, if you will. You know, I feel like if not for The Twilight Zone, we may never have had shows like The X-Files. I'm being honest. Yeah, exactly. It did, I think, pave the way for a lot of uh, paranormal type shows. Science fiction mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yes, groundbreaking in science fiction. Mm. Well, let's be real here too, man. Any any of those old black and white TV shows, that's just good for the soul. Oh, yeah. And, um... Oh! What was that? I was okay. just agreeing with Adam. Okay. It's nothing like a classic black and white TV show. Yeah. So let's jump right into it. Uh, we get into the man responsible for the whole thing, uh, Rod Serling himself. Now, I just want to say right off the bat, this guy is badass. Um, doing all this research, I'd put him right up there with Marion C. Cooper. Um, if you don't know who that is, let go give our King Kong episode a listen. As far as, you know, just American heroes and badasses in Hollywood, mm. I mean, you just don't have that anymore. No, you do not. You know, no guys are out there cutting the throats and freaking fighting... Uh, the Japanese in World War II. I don't think that's because we're fighting the <laughs> Japanese anymore. <laughs> or smoking four packs a day. <laughs> yeah. So let's put our time travel caps on and escape to Syracuse, New York. The 315, shout out Orange Men, shout out Donovan McNabb, shout out Trail of Lies. Shout out uh, Big Daddy. Because Syracuse <laughs> is 0-3 right now. Now, the time is... Christmas Day, 1924, when a little Rod Serling was born. Uh, he was born to a Jewish family, Esther and Samuel Sterling. Esther was a stay-at-home mom, while Sam, 
His dad was a, a bit of a jack of all trades. Um, he worked as a secretary, an amateur inventor. Sounds like our own pal Rob over here. <laughs> yeah. And a grocer who eventually became a butcher when the Great Depression forced his grocery shop to close. Um, Rod also had one older brother, Robert J. Mm. Oh, Serling, uh, who in, also, in fact, became a popular writer. Um, now, Jed and I were doing a little bit of digging on his brother here. We watched a documentary. Oh, throwing mad shade at his brother. Yeah, kind of a dickhead. It must He's, be the name, dude. Older brother. <laughs> yeah, Robert J. He said... Quote uh, on quote says, I guess I'm going to miss him. Yeah. And he said, like, uh, they asked him about his show, and he was like, ah, I mean, I maybe saw a couple episodes. It was kind of good. A couple episodes. <laughs> yeah. There's over 150 episodes. Do you think, though, maybe Rod was kind of a dick after, you know, the fame got to his head? Mm. I could see that because I did see a lot of that in the documentary. We're watching, like, when he moved out to Hollywood, he got, like, very caught up in the stardom. Yeah. They didn't get along prior to the show. Oh, so there you go. They had problems Classic in college, brothers. you know. Probably you know, girls. Not all brothers. Probably girls, yeah. <laughs> Not all brothers can be as close as us, you know. <laughs> Growing up, I'd say the, that Rod had a pretty good childhood. Um, his parents encouraged his dreams to be a performer, and um, his old man actually built him a stage in the basement where Rod and his neighborhood friends would put on plays. Oh, this kind of sounds like Hal in the backyard letting you guys stick around with the <laughs> yeah, camera. Yeah, just doing whatever movies. we want. Um, he was also extremely talkative from a very young age. Um, his brother accounted that once he talked um, for the entire car ride from Bingham to Syracuse, which is about two hours, while his family remained silent to see if Rod even noticed, which he did not. <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> now that sounds like something Ryan would do. Oh, please. Please. Now, uh, okay. So right off the bat, early elementary school, uh, Serling was viewed as a class clown. Uh, many of his teachers quoted him as being a lost cause. I don't think you're supposed to say that, man. What? I don't think you're supposed to call kids a lost cause. <laughs> well, maybe they didn't say it to his face. I mean, a different time, different time. You don't do that to any of your kids? I wouldn't say it to their face. <laughs> Didn't you, remember, you make a kid uh, cry the other day? <laughs> kid asked for a sticker. No. <laughs> I feel like our geometry teacher was kind of like that. That's true. I mean, there's many teachers that are just dickheads, you know? Some of them are just in it for the paycheck, obviously. Yeah, well, actually... Let's not get political, though. Yeah, so his seventh grade English teacher actually encouraged him to go out for a lot of extracurricular clubs. Now, in my experience, it's always the English teachers that are the coolest ones. I mean, that's me. Exactly. I've had some great English teachers in my day. I used to have an English teacher that was a total babe. Oh, yes. Miss Sears. Shout out, Miss <laughs> Sears. I was just blatantly call her out. <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> Serling joined the debate team. Uh, he wrote for the school newspaper, and he tried to go out for the football team, but they wouldn't have it as he was only 5'4". What, did they never see Rudy? I guess not. You know, this was before Rudy's time. Uh, but he did excel at tennis and table tennis. Oh, kind of got a Forrest Gump situation. Yes, Forrest going. Gump on our hands, except, um, oh, I'm not going to say that. So he, <laughs> he was also interested in radio and writing from a very early age. Um, 
He never had anything published, though. You know, he was no Stephen King. He wasn't out there cranking out stories um, at a young age like King, you know, writing in um, freaking high school. Um, Serling actually ended up speaking at his high school graduation, though, uh, which was he graduated from Binghampton, Binghampton High School, 1943. Freaking Binghamton, you know what I'm saying? Right up there by Montauk. <laughs> yeah. And uh, while he was accepted to college his senior year, he actually decided to enlist, just like his older brother, instead of going to college as the U.S. was involved in World War II. Serling uh, served in the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 11th Airborne Division and would attain the rank of Technician 4th Grade. Uh, That's basically a sergeant. And he boxed in the army as a flyweight, had a total of 17 bouts, and was known for having his nose broken in his first and very last bout. Damn. And the guy went 17 and 1, right? I'm not, I didn't actually see his record. Can you confirm that? I think he was undefeated till his last fight, and they said that he yeah, pretty much it. got his ass kicked and then was like, all right. I'm yeah, done. it was like a tournament. So he made it to like almost the semifinals and got knocked out. This guy just said he had 17 fights, and you said he went 17 and 1? I swear that's what I saw. All right, all right. Maybe he's only counting the wins. <laughs> all, right, all right, that's fair. Okay, so... Real Conor McGregor. 16 and 1, 17 to 1, we don't really know. Uh, so <laughs> on April 25th, 1944, uh, Serling received his orders on reporting to join the fight in the Pacific now, this I actually was reading disappointed him. Uh, he wanted to go fight Hitler in the, um, you know, the, uh, what do you call it? The Europe. The, the European, European theater. theater. Yeah. He uh, was like fascinated with the idea of defeating this ultimate evil in Adolf Hitler. So he was actually kind of disappointed when he got assigned to the Pacific theater. Um, now, he saw his first combat in November of 44 in the Philippines. Uh, originally, his unit was used as a light infantry unit to essentially clean up after the first units had already gone in. Now, that's got to be a hell of a job. you probably see some crazy shit. And uh, Serling was eventually transferred to the demolition unit known as the Death Squad due to its high casualty rate. Uh, his sergeant, Frank Lewis, claimed that Serling didn't have the wit or aggression for combat. Uh, and he recalls one incident where they were engaged in a firefight and trapped in a foxhole waiting for nightfall. And his sergeant noticed Rod didn't even bother reloading his extra magazines and would occasionally just wander off, uh, you know, against orders and get lost. He's like that freaking guy in Thin Red Line. Mm. Just deserter, you know. So he saw death every single day um, that he was involved. And from... You know, both enemy and allied forces. One time specifically, uh, one Private Melvin Levy was just, you know, he was delivering a monologue, you know, some acting spiel to the unit when, boom, out of nowhere, a food crate was dropped from an allied plane decapitating him right in front of the whole platoon. Wow. That'll mess your day up, man. Yeah, and uh, one of the biggest battles Serling fought in was uh, for control of Manila, and it's reported there was a 50% casualty rate um, in his unit alone. And uh, Serling was wounded, but eventually sent back to the occupation of Japan, which was his final assignment. And uh, during his time in the service, he earned a Purple Heart, 
a bronze star, and the Philippine Liberation Medal. All-American badass. <laughs> now, uh, Serling's time in the service can be seen as a major event in uh, shaping his worldview for the rest of his life. I mean, it, I think this comes out in his writing, his uh, philosophies, and his stories that are we see in the Twilight Zone, uh, you know? And I feel like this is pretty common with most World War II vets. Uh, you know, he was plagued with flashbacks. Uh, they lasted his whole life. And um, he says in uh, a clip I got from his very last interview, um, they asked him, what was uh, the lowest point in your life emotionally? And Serling says, quote, emotionally, I think it was during the war. I was convinced I wasn't going to come back. You know, he says he was bitter after his time in the service, and he turned to writing to get it off his chest. Uh, I mean, obviously, seeing stuff like that as we get start talking about some of the episodes, you're going to see how that influences, I mean, some of the ideas he has. Yeah, you definitely. You see some gnarly stuff like that, man. Oh, yeah. It's, it's going to stick with you. Um, so he was discharged from service in 46, and in 1950, he earned a degree in literature uh, originally majored in physical education and later theater and broadcasting. Uh, but he earned a degree in literature from Antioch, is that how you say it? Uh, college in Ohio. Um, on campus is where he first got into radio. He wrote and directed um, several radio broadcasts on campus. And um, for extra money, get this, for extra money in his college years, Serling worked um, testing parachutes for the United States Army Air Forces. Uh, so he received $50 for each successful jump <laughs> and was once paid 500 half before, half after if he survived. How do you sign up for this job? Exactly. <laughs> I was thinking that. I was like, dude, I would do that. That's got to be thrilling. Um, 50 bucks. Yeah, well, you could die, but you get fifty bucks if you don't. Hey, five hundred. In one instance, he earned a thousand dollars for testing a jet ejection seat that had killed the previous three testers. <laughs> <laughs> guys, a savage. Yeah, this I'm guy's. A, I'm gonna pass on that. No fear. He's like, fuck it. Fuck uh, it this guy's a fucking animal. Um, he also developed a reputation in college as a ladies' man on campus. Uh, Rob, any comments on that? <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say, bud? I mean, guy's fucking pure swag. Yeah, no. Always wear, rocking a suit, got the voice down, smoking a cig. He was, uh, he did, however, you know, despite his reputation as a ladies' man, he met Carolyn Lewis Kramer, who would become his wife in July of 48 while he was still in college. Um, and they would go on to have two daughters, Jody and Anne. Poor guy was swimming in the estrogen ocean. No wonder he had so many crazy ideas. Yeah. So Serling moved uh, to the Big Apple, uh, where he bounced around as a freelance radio writer. And in uh, 1955 is where he had his big breakthrough um, when he branched out into TV writing. He wrote the screenplay for Patterns. Uh, basically a story about like, you know, the business world backstabbing, um, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. You know, like typical business stuff. Um, so that would actually earn him an Emmy award and then boom, back to back in 56, Serling has another hit with Requiem for a heavyweight. Requiem? Requiem. <laughs> yeah. But you said Requiem for a heavyweight. Isn't that what it's called? I thought it was Requiem. Requiem? Requiem. Yeah. Requiem. 
<laughs> hey, man, to each his own. Okay. Serling has another hit, Requiem. <laughs> that was like a combination of both. Requiem. Yeah, there we go. For a heavyweight. Classic boxer story as Serling was a boxer himself. Um, 17 and 1 or 16 and 1. We don't know. Or 17 and 0. And, uh, like and gets another Emmy for that one. Another one. Another one. <laughs> and uh, around this time, so now we're getting to like the late 50s, um, he gets into his first censorship issues with the network. Big theme um, throughout his career, right? Yeah, yeah. Real big theme. I mean, this guy was, he was referred to as the angry young man in Hollywood. And uh, he was constantly at, at um, what do you call it? At, um, at odds, at ends. At odds, at, at uh, you know, yeah. Arguing with these freaking suits at the network about censorship issues. Um, most notable of these was, you know, his first issues was in a Town That Turned to Dust. Um, and I believe we've got our very own Jed Groom who's done some research on this one. So the year's 1955 down in the South, Mississippi. A young boy named Emmett Till going to visit some family in Mississippi. His mother told him to be wary because in the South, the segregation is a little heavier than up North. So this young man is just hanging out, you know, visiting family, he goes into a candy shop and is convicted of flirting with a white woman cashier. And as he leaves, he goes back to his great uncles. The cashier actually was the wife's uh, the wife of the owner of the shop. He came back into town. The brother-in-law, they found him, actually dragged him out of the house, took him down by the river, brutally beat him, and tied a cotton gin fan to his back. The body was found three days later. It was so butchered up that only a few of the family members could recognize him. Now, the police wanted to cover this up quickly and bury the body and take it all out of the whole scenario due to the whole scene kind of of the Jim Crow laws and everything that's going on with the civil rights. But the mother actually wanted the body to come back to Chicago. So she gets the body and she actually has a open casket funeral to show how brutal the beatings was. And Serling mm. picked up on this case and the case actually gets, they get not guilty for the husband and the brother-in-law due to it's the South of in course, 1955. Yeah, get off. So the jury said not guilty within an hour because there was no like DNA testing and all that. So if Sterling picks up on this case, like a lot of people in that time, Aaron was like, this is messed up. So his first real bother with that is he had this script for this, but they changed the whole script. It wasn't in the South. It went straight to New England. It wasn't a, it wasn't a young black boy. It was a foreigner. And pretty much his whole script got turned to nothing. And that was for the Town of Dusk. And he also tries to do another rendition called Noon. And the same thing. He tried to write the script. They changed the whole thing. They made it go out west. They made it be uh, about a little Mexican boy. But So he always had problems with the censorship with that because some things they just don't want to be said on air. Yeah. Now, now we, we don't get political. But, you know, disclaimer right here, this podcast... It might get a little political because that's just the type of guy Rod was. Now, CBS, we're not confirming or denying. Maybe a little bit racist back in the day. I'm thinking, and um, you know this. You know he would go on to be outspoken about um, issues like this his entire career. And um, well, I was just gonna say, didn't that lady come out recently and say like that all was a lie? That whole Emma Till thing, like she yeah, she lied come about through. that. Literally, was just a whistle. Yeah. So That's there was crazy. no touching or anything. It was just 
boy whistled at her. Yeah. And he was 14 years old. That's outlandish, dude. I whistle at girls all the time. Can you edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> no, he cannot. No, I cannot. So, um, nothing wrong with a whistle here and there. Am I right? <laughs> so, boom, bringing us right into the Twilight Zone. Um, series originally ran from 59 to 64 on CBS, who, by the way, still owns the rights. Uh, 156 episodes. Um, now, it had mild success during its time, average of 25 million uh, viewers, um, but it it did have good reviews. Um, but apparently, you know, for primetime like slot on CBS, it really didn't do that good when it was originally on the air. I mean, uh, it wasn't as popular as it is today until it actually went off the air and into syndication. Uh, which I feel like, you know, it's the case with a lot of sci-fi. I mean, look at Blade Runner. Like, that did not do well at the box office. But, you know, it, it is now, like, revered as one of the most classic and visually stunning movies of all time. Um, so after cancellation of the series, Serling actually sold his rights to CBS. Um, he was, you know, he didn't know, hey, this was going to go on to be a fucking insane, insanely, like, influential and, like, powerful uh, show so, you know, he just sold the rights to CBS um, and, you know, didn't didn't know it would go into syndication, didn't know what he would have gained from the royalties. I mean, can you imagine what his estate would be worth now if he hadn't sold the rights? I mean, it's still worth a lot of money, but uh, CBS has all the original rights to the shows. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Yep. And uh, there's actually two episodes which didn't go into syndication due to disputes. Um, these were an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is it was a, originally a French short film that won an Oscar, I believe. And um, Serling actually only bought the rights to air it like twice. So this one didn't go into syndication, but it's actually on Netflix now. Um, and The Encounter. Now, this was the only episode to be pulled from the air. And this was, again, due to racial subject matter. As of now, the episode has been re-aired um, as of actually January 1st, 2016. They put it back on when they do the marathons. They mm. play this episode now. Pretty interesting episode. Check out The Encounter. Uh, me and Jed actually watched it the other day. Pretty pretty good episode, I'd say. Now, what was uh, what are some of your guys' you know, first exposures to the show, some of your earliest memories? One of my first memories is like being in high school and kind of seeing it on the sci-fi channel and not really knowing anything of it. But like the whole black and white thing kind of kept me watching it. So I was like, oh, I like, I like old movies. But as you watch it, it's just really, you would think from that time era, I wasn't going to be watching something like this. It's going to be something funny or like a quick like Three Stooge type style stuff. But it, this is actually pretty mind opening and it makes you think. It's kind of one of those shows that when it's not on and I'm like walking throughout my day, I'm like thinking about it. <laughs> I think. Uh... The first time I can remember being exposed to it, and it's not really even true Twilight Zone material, but the uh, Disney movie. Oh, really? You guys so remember that? Was, this is like 97, Yeah, I think, is when that dropped. But, I mean, definitely can recall getting into it at a younger age. Classic show. I think my first exposure, not even the TV show, we were in seventh grade reading out of those big literature books, and there was like... Uh, a script from an episode i think it was the shelter i'm trying to think back that was a long time ago but i think it was like a portion of the episode the shelter and i was like man this is kind of cool 
and it said something about you know I had like a little biography about Rod Serling at the end check out yeah. the TV show The Twilight Zone and that's when I really was like alright cool I'll check this out The Shelter I don't know if I've ever seen that one it's pretty good it's uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I remember uh, seeing it at a very young age um, you know weekends when Hal was watching us mm. uh, it was either Twilight Zone or Three Stooges and uh but yeah, I mean, I remember seeing it very young, but I couldn't really comprehend what was going on. Uh, I think the first episode I truly like remembered was actually from the 80s revamp. Uh, it was mm. the Leprechaun artist. Uh, these three kids like capture a leprechaun and one wishes for x-ray vision. He sees through the girl's shirt. <laughs> <laughs> like that one of course that's the is, one is 80s, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly but uh i really started to get into it i'd say like maybe eighth ninth grade i mean countless nights jed and i would watch reruns uh, even going as rob mentioned on the disney ride and thinking you know the whole ambiance that old you know big band music badass okay. now I believe this show was a game changer. I mean, wouldn't you guys agree? Honestly, I think this opened up a lot of doors for everything else because with this, then you had Outer Limits. You got all yep. these other science fiction theater yeah. shows coming out. Um, you know, the the show, uh, you know, Serling, he would never admit it himself. Uh, he said in an interview that he doesn't think the show was all that influential. But uh, as Jed and I found... Um, this was, in fact, one of the first sci-fi anthology series to be nationally broadcast. It was only predated by two true anthology series um, in sci-fi, both of which didn't make it past like 70 or so episodes. So Rod and Jed are both very modest, is what yes. you're telling me. Yes. Okay. okay. Now, uh, a series almost didn't get made as uh, his original pilot was The Time Element, and this was shelved for a year until it was picked up for Desilu Playhouse in 1958. And um, it ended up being made into like uh, about a 45-minute, uh, I guess, short film, you call it. Uh, so successful on Desilu Playhouse that it actually gave Serling the elbow room to create the Twilight Zone. And, you know, then we've got episode one. Um, which was actually Where Is Everybody? It wasn't this, The Phantom Menace? <laughs> no. Okay. This aired on October 7th, 1959, and this was um, this ended up being the pilot after two of his others were shot down. I mean, we had the time element he wanted as his original pilot, and then he had another one, but the company was like, uh, you know, again, controversial, CBS, a uh, bunch of freaking hoopla, freaking uh, lawyers, you know. Real, 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 uh, heavy stuff. And, the FCC um, wouldn't let him be. Yeah, you know this guy's a freaking M first M and M, right? <laughs> and uh, the people's champ. Yeah, so this had weekly episodes. They were shot in three days time. Uh, yeah, in a documentary we were watching, submitted for your approval. It's actually on YouTube. Uh, actors talk about like rushing around this this sets uh, in order to film scenes like so quickly back to back. Um, so like one actress said, you'd be like having to do some like crazy action scene, and then boom, you're running to like a, a very quiet like somber romantic scene, and you, they were like trying not to like breathe hard from like running around <laughs> sets and like trying to get ready for film. This is like Star Wars when they had to do like three scenes at once, you know. And Serling says this was one of the things he would change if given the opportunity. Um, 
when you think about it, it's actually pretty crazy that they were able to do that. I mean, think about it. You got to film, cut, and edit an episode every week. Sounds like uh, Ryan Scott producing a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, it is a lot of work. I mean, just this alone, I can't imagine doing having to coordinate all the scenes, getting all this all the shots set up and then cutting and editing all the film and sound. That's insane. And and even have it be good or and contain thought provoking material, you know, because anybody can churn out this freaking Big Bang Theory dog crap that everybody <laughs> loves. <laughs> you know? So have it be something as crazy as this, I think that's a freaking uh you know, that's an accomplishment. CBS, am I right? Yeah, I mean, you know, granted, Twilight Zone is kind of hit or miss. There's, they're not always the best acting, but I think the stories were able to carry it through. You know, I think there's a saying like, uh, "What's a good play with nothing on it?" <laughs> <laughs> it's like, um, isn't there a saying like, if the, if the characters are shitty, the the story will carry it through, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, age old. Age-old classic. <laughs> yeah, but the shitty, the story will carry it through. Yeah, but uh, so actually, this is interesting too. I found so Serling gravitated to sci-fi because he figured, you know, hell, I'll probably get less censorship in stories filled with robots and aliens and supernatural. You know, this was a way for him to mesh social issues, morals, and like his philosophies with uh, totally fictitious worlds. Um, you know, basically to have it so it's not directly in your face, but he makes a story yeah. out of it, so it doesn't seem as because all of them have like morals or a point yeah. or some type of like they lesson. make you think, yeah, or a lesson, lesson. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, they originally wanted Orson Welles to narrate it. Ooh. Yeah, I think he actually like because uh, Serling wasn't originally going to be the face of the show, but he ended up doing it um, because they couldn't find anybody else. You think uh, best idea they had. You think Orson Welles kind of put the nail in his coffin after the old uh, War of the Worlds prank? Everyone was like, fuck this guy, <laughs> <Yeah>. man. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think they were like, man, this guy's badass. I mean, hell, I'd fucking have a beer with Orson Welles. <laughs> no, I would too. But I, would I hire him to do something <laughs> like that? You know, after pranking? This guy's like the original uh, Ashton Kutcher punk in the world, man. <laughs> the original jackass, Orson Welles. Um, now, okay. So how about this one for you guys? Stories inspired by real events. Um, You know, as far as this goes, uh, we really didn't find too much on, you know, like this story was directly inspired by this event. I'd assume that a lot of his episodes um, that Serling wrote were like directly influenced from his experiences in the war. I mean, the idea that like anything can happen at any given moment, like life and death is very fragile and kind of the nature of reality, you know, questions that you probably wouldn't think too much about until you've been in something as crazy as the Pacific theater Mm. of world war two. Right. (laughs) Imagine the stories that he had, you know, or the shit that like, he just didn't talk about, about the war. Uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut was another like crazy sci-fi writer that was in world war two. Granted he was in the European theater, but Again, you know, these guys probably had insane stories. Definitely probably changed their view of life after yeah. seeing all that. Even hearing stories from other people, you know, maybe yeah. putting a spin on it, there's an episode. You know? Oh, yeah. Anyways, there was one story that we did find that was straight up influenced by a real event. And now we will get to the... 
breakdown. So uh, this was season two, episode one. Um, King Nine will not return. Shout out to um, King Nine, the band also. Uh, <laughs> this one aired on September 30th, 1960. Uh, first, And this is actually the first episode where Serling is on camera for the intro instead of just a voiceover. Yeah, he didn't wasn't on camera for the intro until season two. And um, I mean, basically the plot, we're not going to give any spoilers, but uh, this B-2 pilot wakes up uh, in the desert uh, in a crash plane and his crew is nowhere to be found. And he just kind of starts to slowly slip into insanity. Um, and, you know, we won't spoil the ending because it's pretty good. So check out the ending for yourselves now streaming on Netflix and Hulu. And that is not an ad. This is actually streaming on Netflix and Hulu. Please sponsor us, guys. So <laughs> the real event was actually the disappearance of Lady B. Good, a B-24D bomber that uh, disappeared without a trace after a bombing mission over Naples, Italy in World War II. Uh, now, it disappeared on April 4th, 1943, which is actually featured um, on the headstone that the main character finds in the episode. But the crash remained a mystery until 1958. Um, the wreckage was found deep in the Libyan desert, and it wasn't until 1960 that the remains of eight of the nine crew were found. Staff Sergeant Moore is the only crew member whose remains were not recovered. And, uh, you know, pour one out for these guys. All of them perished as a result of exposure to the desert. Um, and one of the crew members was found 200 miles north of the crash site. Now, they parachuted out of the plane, which were, like, where they landed, I think they calculated, was basically 16 miles from the crash site. So this guy's going, like, hunt. this guy walked over 100 miles. They Yeah, they found one of the guy's uh, diaries, and these guys survived for eight days in the desert with only a single canteen of water. And going freaking over a hundred miles, and the uh, the actual tragic thing about this story is that uh, the crew possibly could have survived had they known where they were. Apparently, they like overflew the base due to a sandstorm and like a radio malfunction. Thought they were over water, which is they ended up crashing in the desert. So imagine these guys eject, they parachute down, they think they're over water, and they're in the middle of a desert, mm. and they just start. Like they, they think they knew where they were, which is why they went north. But you know, it would have been easily another few hundred miles before anybody found them. But had they known where they were, if they would have gone only ninety miles south instead of north, they probably would have uh, been found. You know. So again, you know, pour one out for these guys. And it was uh, some of the crew. It was their very first combat mission. Mm. You just hate to see it. Yeah. And so, you know, this episode, I feel like, you know, we had to throw this in here because this one was so heavily influenced by a real event. I mean, I feel like this was Serling's tribute to these guys as a vet himself. And um, based on, again, the journal recovered from these guys, they probably did, you know, slip into insanity just like in the episode before eventually um, dying of exposure. I mean, imagine going that far off one canteen of water, you're just going to start freaking out, you know, seeing things in the desert, yep. losing your mind. Yeah. Losing your mind, just slowly going insane. But aside from this episode, I mean, what, uh, what would you guys say are some of your favorite episodes? I gotta say, uh, monsters do on Maple Street. It's probably definitely one of my favorites. 
Okay, top episode, you'd say? Top episode for me. I think I'm going to go with either Nick of Time or A Most Unusual Camera, just because that one kind of brings me back to that Goosebumps episode. You guys remember that (laughs) one? Young Gosling? Yeah. Very similar. You would say that's favorite? Either that or Nick of Time. I found it interesting that we all listed our favorite episodes and no one... Mentioned like the same one. Had any crossover? Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, what yeah. would you say? I had uh, the Mighty Casey because baseball, you know. <laughs> um, one of my other favorite ones is It's a Good Life, the one with the boy. Really? You yeah. like that one? Uh, that I just w- remember watching it with you, so maybe it's just a good memory. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That was like, yeah, that one's like constantly voted on as like top, but I, I think that one's like kind of overrated. Well, most critics are Santa Claus. What else you got? What else you got on? I that? had a Night of the Meek with Santa Claus. Oh, classic one. I watched that one in preparation. Me too. Yeah, I had. Um, I would say probably my favorite one is of late, I think, of Cliffordville. You guys know that one? Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously, Nick of Time. And then uh, Come Wander With Me. Uh, Game of Pool is also another classic. You know, going back to the uh, shooting in three days and editing, I was watching uh, Number 12 Looks Just Like You last night. There's like three damn people in the whole episode. <laughs> Because everyone gets, like, cloned to be beautiful in that episode. Okay. So I feel like episodes like that, I mean, it's just three fucking people. It can't be that hard to edit that. They're, like, 20-minute episodes. Okay. Why don't you go ahead and edit us a little TV show? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) YouTube channel coming soon. Podcast from Outer Space, the TV show. Yeah. Now, um, so any other episodes we want to mention in here, guys? I mean, I, I had a long list. I still had, like... Man in a Bottle classic. I had oh, that is a good one. Uh, After Hours. Neil deGrasse says that's one of his favorites. Mm. He also says one of the best shows to ever be on TV. He did say that. Yep. Uh, quoted Neil deGrasse Tyson. Big fan of Twilight Zone. Uh, Long Distance Call, also another creepy one. Um, third from the Sun, great twist. Honorable mention, He's Alive. Familiar? Jello. Hitler. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> um... So we pulled a few lists for you guys. Now, we went ahead and uh, we're going to say IMDb is the most credible, but we I also went ahead and found um, on Ranker.com. So this is a list uh, voted on by fans and voters, 14.8K votes um, of the top episodes. Number one, what are we thinking? Eye of the Beholder uh, as number one. Uh, no, coming in at number two, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Yo. There you go, Jed. Uh, three, Time Enough at Last. Also, I mean, how do you guys feel about that episode? Serling says he, this is one of his favorites. That one in Walking Distance is one of his favorites. Yep. It was I. It was I. Yeah. Uh, four, To Serve Man. That's a great one. That's an all-time classic. And Extra uh, twist. Five, yeah. Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Made my list. Now, IMDb... Has them ranked uh, number one to serve man, which I I put that up there as ahead of the um, Eye of the Beholder. I like that one better. Uh, Two is Time Enough at Last. Three, Nightmare. Uh, They got Eye of the Beholder coming in at four and five, Penny for Your Thoughts. Classic one. Mm. Now, well, one thing that was crazy about the show is uh, Rod being the people's champ. The show got canceled three times, so... First time gets canceled, fans flooded CBS and just kept writing letters like, you need to bring this back. So they brought it back, and then they brought it back again. But obviously in the third time, he kind of let it stay. Now, see, how many fan letters do you think they got? 
Oh, so it said that, you know how they uh, would let you submit your own script? Yeah. So in the time period of the show, there was 14,000 mailed-in scripts, and he yeah, only picked two, <laughs> but he still never used them. But can you imagine? I mean, he probably didn't scripts? even read half of those. Well, he said he read about like 100 or so. Yeah, but, but that's insane. But 14,000? Uh, there's no way, yeah. And DMs, can you imagine what some of those were? Uh, well, are crazy. Yeah. I heard him say, like, uh, when he was reading them, he was like, you know, most of these are prefaced with, oh, I'm not a very good writer. But yeah. uh, so a lot of it was actually probably Modest. garbage. Modest. <laughs> but uh, you think uh, if something got canceled and all these fans wrote in, do you think in this day and age they would even bring it back? That's a possibility. You are think you kidding me with social media? Now, do we think maybe this is where Alexi's script ended up? Slipped into the twilight zone. What? Uh, Cloudy with a chance for meatballs. meatballs, maybe. <laughs> Although she says now that she doesn't think she wrote that. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, um, moving on. Wait, uh, wait. I just want to say one last thing uh, while we're on the topic okay. before we move ahead. Wait, I have something after you. It was interesting to me in watching these documentaries, and no disrespect to the man, you know, Rod's a damn legend. Um, but a lot of these documentaries and stuff were saying that once he kind of made it big started doing twilight zone that's kind of when the fame got to his head oh yeah but it's interesting to me that there is a lot of like underlying tones in these episodes about like not letting you know what everyone else thinks of you get the best of you a lot of you know breaking away from the norm and not being what society wants you to be yeah definitely but then this guy's caught up in the Hollywood lifestyle. Well, some of the stuff I was uh, listening to on one of the documentaries was saying, like, those were reflections of, like, that was him coming out in his writing. Like, he was saying, I have fallen victim to success. Like, here's, it's evident in my writing. I forget which one. It's bad research on my part. I should have written it down. Uh, His his brother, his own brother, uh, was saying how, you know, hey, this one is probably the most true, like the most honest that is like a reflection of him. Uh, and it was all about like, you know, the fame getting to him. So, you know, moving on from Twilight Zone, um, other Serling works. He had a bunch of other stuff. I mean, we're not going to get into everything because we're just going to focus on Twilight Zone in this one. But, um, you know, notable works. Uh, he had the Night Gallery. Uh, this was on from 69 to 73. Um, and this one, you know, it focused more on like occult and horror. Uh, it was very hit or miss, uh, more so than Twilight Zone. Um, there are some good ones though, and a lot of these are v- super like open ended. Like you just kind of take it however you um, want to define it. You know, um, if you're into that type of stuff. Also streaming on Hulu. Not an ad, but please sponsor us. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like me and Jed watched a few Night Gallery episodes, and it's like similar to the Twilight Zone, but Rod's like the curator of a museum, and they've got like three short films or stories um, to do with like occult horror type stuff. And uh, notable episodes, I'd say, are, or one notable episode is uh, Tell David, uh, season two, episode 14. Now, Adam and I watched this a while ago. This one predicts, mm. uh, you know, GPS and iPads. I mean, this show came out in uh, 72, I think. And uh, it's got freaking, the guy's got a little GPS, a little iPad. Again, not going to give away the twist ending. Um, catch that on Hulu. That's season two, episode 14. And then, um, you know, other Twilight Zone works. Uh, We've got the movie. This was released on June 24th of 
This is a Spielberg. Yep. Right, yeah. Spielberg. Produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, he also directed one of the shorts, um, Kick the Can, because it's essentially three short movies um, written and directed by multiple people. Uh, John Landis was actually involved in a lot of the work. He also did Animal House, Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Trading Places. So, yeah. Coming was, to America. Yep. Essentially, it was uh, three short films, total runtime of 101 minutes. And now, again, this is going to get a little heavy. There was actually a helicopter crash on set of the movie that killed three people, uh, Vic Morrow and two child actors. Uh, And this was actually caught on film from three different angles. Now, I watched this footage. Mm. It's on YouTube. Very dark stuff, folks. Yes, this is heavy. I mean, you know, watch at your own risk if you want to. Um, This guy, like, put music over it, and he actually, like, pauses the frames. This shit was crazy. I mean, we've got uh, Lawyer Rob on the case to uh, break down. Yeah, this actually ended up going to court. Uh, The director was charged. Like, the director, the stunt coordinator, and a couple other people were charged. And uh, we've got our Lawyer Rob to break down this case. All right, so as as Ryan already previously mentioned, director was John Landis, produced by Steven Spielberg. Now, Landis is working on this particular scene, already breaking the California child labor laws by paying... Yep, illegally hired these child actors. So there's these two child actors, a seven-year-old and six-year-old, mm. and he's paying them under the table. Not only is he breaking labor laws on this case but number two he's lying to everyone on the set so whenever you're working with pyrotechnics it's common that you know the fire department has to come and inspect everything make sure everything's in order no one's going to be harmed straight up lies to the fire marshal tell them there's there's children on set but they're just with their parents Mm. so then he also lies to the parents tells them oh they're not going to be near the explosion that's just going to be the sound of an explosion. They were like right by it. If you watch the video, they're right there. So this particular scene is supposed to be this guy that's taken back in time to the Vietnam War, and he has to protect some small Vietnamese children. This is where Morrow comes into play. It's pretty crazy because this guy's last words before this accident happened, and we're talking about Vic Morrow here, I got to be crazy for doing this one. I should have asked for a stunt double. Last thing this guy said before this helicopter Jesus, crashes. Jesus. What some accounts say is that the uh, explosions happened way too close to where the helicopter was flying during yeah. the shot. And I think one of the guys said, like, the stunt guy was just like, he knew, like, hey, we can't have an explosion this close to the helicopter, but just didn't say anything. Yeah, so. Say something, people. So basically, this explosion goes off. The pilot loses control. Helicopter crashes down, ends up decapitating Moro and crushing the two kids. Yeah. Insane, man. It's really heavy stuff. And in the end, civil suits against the studio and Landis were settled outside of court. Uh, Landis Wingo, which is the Wingo, who was the pilot of the helicopter, which, I mean, I feel like that's kind of fucked up to charge him. I mean... Obviously, he knew that there was explosions, but 
He's I feel like it's job, honestly man. the director and the whoever was doing the pyrotechnics should be at fault, but that's neither here nor there. They did end up being charged with involuntary manslaughter, though. Mm-hmm. But they got off on the uh, criminal case. Yes, they did. So it was like, and this was one of the first times a director was actually like charged. Yeah, and this guy just gets off. And I also found that. Landis and Spielberg were actually like pretty tight before this yep. and after all that happened because Spielberg didn't really have as big a role. He was basically just producing and Landis was the one trying to like kind of shove everything under the rug, if you will. Yeah. And afterwards Spielberg basically Boom. never talked to him Cut again. Ties. Cause I'm gonna okay, I'm gonna go on record saying I think Landis is a piece of shit for this one. Oh, I'm definitely. saying he illegally hired these kids. I mean, you're the director. You got to know, hey, this is way too dangerous to have. I mean, granted, the freaking pyrotechnic guy didn't even say anything. But, I mean, come on, guys. You know, this is, as a director, this is your job to make sure all these all these guys are doing their jobs and everything's, you know, operating in a safe manner. And, boom, this guy just, you know, walks. Mm-hmm. Mm, this guy's an O.J. Simpson, a director. <laughs> True. He beat the criminal case, but he had to settle the civil, civil. one. So, um, hitting back into the film itself, uh, budget of $10 million, uh, earned $29.5 million at the box office. So, you know, not an enormous hit that they were all, like, hoping it would be, but it was financially successful enough to help... Uh, stir up the interest and uh, green light the 80s TV version of The Twilight Zone. So, yeah, we had two revamps, uh, 85 and 2002. The 85 version um, lasted three seasons, and 2002 had just one season and was actually narrated by Forrest Whitaker replacing Rod Serling's part. Now, cultural uh, impact, you know, influence of Twilight Zone, I'd say this is up there. In uh, a poll taken by uh, Writers Guild of America and the 101 best TV shows ever, Twilight Zone is, boom, number three, falling only two. What are we thinking? Number one TV show ever. What do you say? Number one? Yes, ever. Strictly science fiction? No, ever. Mortal Kombat and Seinfeld. Donkey Kong. What do you say? I'll go with Seinfeld, too. Adam, number one TV show ever? <sighs> Search me, dude. I No guess. So according to WGA, number one, Sopranos. <sighs> Ooh. Number two, Seinfeld. Three, wow, Twilight Zone. Hey. Yeah. You know, as far as like other shows that this paved the way for, I mean, science fiction theater predates Twilight Zone, as we discussed earlier. Um, one Step Beyond. Uh, this was like around the same time as Twilight Zone, but you know more focused on horror. Uh, we had The Outer Limits. Uh, you know we had Way Out, which is actually narrated by Roald Dahl, uh, the guy James that did and James Peach. and the Giant Peach. Yeah, and we had shows like you know Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But you know none of them I feel like are comparable to Twilight Zone. Like most of these are dealing more with like horror, like mm. in the same vein as like Night Gallery. Twilight Zone is really, I think it's really one of the only ones that has these like crazy episodes that really make you think or question like, you know, holy shit. Like they, they got some tough questions in these. You don't think X-Files is comparable? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I would say. I mean, obviously not as deep as. Yeah, some of not the as philosophical, on, yeah. but definitely like they had a lot of paranormal influence on that show and creepy and crazy stuff going on. Yeah, there. and getting into aliens and stuff. And actually, they had uh, in the latest season of X Files, they do an episode that's like a total tribute to the Twilight Zone. Ooh, I gotta check that yeah, out. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, check it out. Features a little Mulder in there watching his first episode. Um, so the episode Living Doll, season five, episode six, streaming on Netflix and Hulu, uh, influenced the ever so popular franchise, Child's Play. Got a couple episodes myself. Okay. That's what I want to get through it. Um, season two, episode 14, The Whole Truth. A used car salesman buys a car that dooms him to tell only the truth. Now, does that sound like a certain Jim Carrey film to you? Oh, liar, liar, I'm thinking. Ding, 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 that's what I'm thinking. (laughs) Do you think direct, I mean, I wouldn't say directly like liar, liar is a ripoff of that, but uh, like, you know, very similar. Yeah. Yeah. In a good way. It's a true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I saw several goosebumps, you know. There's a ventriloquist episode, The Dummy. Oh, yeah. A piano in oh, the house. Dude, you know freaking RL was watching Twilight Zone. Gotta be. He had to be. Yeah. Um, also, the last one I had, Long Distance Call. A toy telephone becomes a link between a <sighs> young boy and his dead grandmother. Yeah. Scarring episode. One of the scariest episodes. Right? <laughs> I, I, I couldn't think of the modern connection. Um, I was thinking Patrick Swayze Ghost, but I know that's wrong. What's the one with the TV? And the little girl. Oh, freaking poltergeist! Is that in my yeah? Is that okay? freaking poltergeist? Yeah, there's also actually an episode. It's called uh, I think it's called the missing girl, uh, and she goes into like a portal in her bedroom, and the parents can't find her. So they can hear. Yeah, yeah, that one's pretty creepy. Yeah. Didn't you say uh, for a Truman Show too? Yep, Truman, Truman show. show has its influence in one. The guy sees the camera in his mirror. And it's like he finds out his whole life is being broadcast twenty four seven. That's directly Truman Show. Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, man, big yeah. Twilight Zone fan. Look at his paintings now, man. Hey. So you know, we also got the uh, Disney ride classic. Oh. We also got Gene Roddenberry, who is uh, pretty much the Star Trek guy, and he said that. Rod Serling's work in Twilight Zone heavily influenced Star oh, Trek. For sure. I mean, I think Star Trek. And a little cue, four of the top eight cast members of the original Star Trek were all played oh, on the Twilight yep, Zone. Yep. Now, uh, yeah, I would say Star Trek is another one of those science fiction shows that's like deeply rooted in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Like, a lo- there's so many uh, philosophical quandaries in Star Trek. Um, but yeah, we've got, so then we've got the Disney ride. Best ride ever. Absolute classic. Shout out. Pour I one mean, out, man. You guys all been on this? On and on. Okay, and on. yeah. So the one in Disneyland is now Guardians of the Galaxy. Still a great ride. I've been on it several times. But uh it's still Twilight Zone in Disney World. Last time I went on that ride was actually with you and Jed, right? <laughs> yeah, Shut we up. flipped off the camera, our photo dropped into another dimension. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't uh, now <laughs> people were so mad about that. Oh what yeah. Do you expect the most fifteen year old kids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, classic ride. Now, um, the footage of Serling and the intro to that ride, if you've ever been on it, is actually taken from It's a Good Life. Ah. And this was actually crazy. Uh, it's a voiceover by not Serling himself because the ride opened in 94. Uh, Serling died in 75. Um, this was like a voice actor, like an impersonator who did it. A real Rob Scott. Insane. Yeah. It's actually, also, I found out, actually not a free fall. Mm. 
So did you know there's actually cables that are uh, pulling the elevator down faster than a straight-up free fall? I did not know that. Did yeah. you know that? No, I did not. Now, um, this had a movie based off it in 97, Rob, um, on Disney Channel. Premiered on October 26, 97. Um, feet Steven Gutenberg and Kirsten Dunst, the young Kirsten. Uh, and it was, uh, yeah, it was actually written by DJ McHale, who also, maybe you're familiar with a little show he did, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Classic show. Yes. Mm. Now, Again, shows today, this paved the way for shows, you know, I mean, maybe X-Files, those guys were all influenced by Twilight Zone, uh, Black Mirror, comparable. Oh, heavily, heavily. Yeah. Uh, even like Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, uh, you know, <laughs> anthology series, even... Uh, Stranger Things, right? <laughs> yeah. You brought that up in an old Yeah, um, Stranger Things, the Duffer Brothers, they originally wanted it to be an anthology series. Um, so, you know... Would you say RL is influenced by it? Oh, definitely, yeah. We we just said that, literally. Um, <laughs> so uh, what else, anything else, um, you know, you guys think it might have influenced, paved the way for, anything else you want to say monumental about the Twilight Zone here? And you got to think in this time period, we're like pre-Cold War, War, just World War II is getting out. So, mm-hmm. and the TV's still pretty young. TV hasn't been around for too long. So, this to be coming out, it's definitely shaking it up. Oh, you know? yeah. This isn't the its typical love story or a soap opera type deal. It's kind of like in your yep. face, progression, visionary. Yeah. You're and, not really uh, going to understand the episode till the very end because there's so many twists. You can't even guess half the time what might happen. Like we were saying before, man, Jed mentioned usually at the end there's a moral or a twist and you're trying to learn. Here's Serling Chance to make social commentary on what's going on in the world. It's a crazy time in the world. WW2 just ended. Yeah. You know, McCarthyism, the Reds are running around. Red civil rights. Right. You know, we're dealing with racism. We're dealing with robots, time travel, like all this stuff going on, man. And Yeah. And um, even like I remember Serling was saying in one of the interviews I watched, he was saying not only like he believed TV should like not only be entertaining, but it should also like inform people. You know, he didn't just want to put out any old crap like mindless television. He wanted to have stuff that was actually like engaging socially and like trying to tackle these like gray area questions that are, you know, age old questions that, you know, rooted in philosophy, um, even stuff like his scripts for civil rights and pushing for censorship issues. Um, you know, this guy was really uh, one smart guy, you know, and he wanted he, he had his platform and wanted to, like, use it, you know, to help educate people with. I think that's one of the things that helps it, you know, stand up still today yeah. is that he was able to blend, you know, civil so rights, much, social yeah. awareness with that, you know, fear of the unknown and different yeah. dimension type things. And then, like you said earlier, there's so much, like, garbage out there that yeah. is just, like, basically mindless bullshit and then that that's like you know over 50 years old now so and it still has more content to it than Mm -hmm. half the shit that's coming out today yeah and he would even say like uh serling himself didn't fancy himself as like a sci-fi writer uh he says that he would try to like adapt things i mean when this show first came out there was really like we were saying there was no other like science fiction had been around for a while, so there was so much short stories. He was saying there's a, basically a gold mine to pick from, and he would find try to find stories that were, you know, 
align with his views and then adapt them to fit the visual medium because this wasn't on TV. So he would pick stories that could be well adapted to visuals, you know. You could definitely hear the influence, too, of his radio writing because everything that he says and his narration, yeah. the words are so heavy. Oh, because yeah. everything he's saying, he's literally painting a picture for you because that's what he had to do as a radio writer. But now he had the whole show with it, he too. The so visuals, it was heavy yeah. worded. And like it's almost film noir with like the shadows, the black and white, the different camera effects at the time. Oh yeah, it really just puts you like in the scenario. And yeah, like I mean, can you imagine if that guy had a podcast today? Podcast I can listen to him for hours. His words are so soothing. Yeah, the voice man, voice of a generation, angry young man. Yep. So you know we've got to um, hit you guys with this one. Pour one out for Serling himself. Um, May of 75, when he was 50 years old, um, Serling had a heart attack while running on a treadmill. Uh, a couple weeks later, he had a second heart attack at his cottage in Cayuga Lake, and he was sent to the hospital for open-heart surgery. He actually had a heart attack on the operating table. And, um, but the, you know they went through with the surgery, and on June 28, 1975, at the very young age of 50 years old, uh, Rod Serling died at Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York. Uh, so, you know, moment of silence for this guy. Huge influence on uh, modern TV. And I'd say, you know, one of the greatest uh, sci-fi writers of our time, Easily. even though he really didn't fancy himself as one, um, you know. This guy, I mean, can you? Ima- I mean, died at fifty. Can you imagine the stuff he would have come out with yeah. had he not passed away? The times change and everything too. You imagine what he would be writing oh, nowadays? Yeah. Oh man, so much stuff. And uh, you know, I think I would say this is probably one of the only uh, you know celebrities, quote unquote, that I genuinely would really want to see what he would do like nowadays with his whole platform and like the stuff, the content that he would put out, you know? Yeah. Cause he's not scared to really jump on toes. So if there's something that he wants to address, Angry he's going to put man. it out there. Yeah. And by now he would probably have enough money where he'd have his own channel. <laughs> yeah. Sponsors wouldn't even matter. <laughs> That'd be insane, man. I mean, can you imagine him working with Netflix? Oh. Yeah. So we're going to end this episode um, with a clip from Sterling himself, you know, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Um, now, again, not going to get political, um, but, you know, out of all the episodes we watched in preparation, I think that um, this message, you know, this message in his ending monologue, it's uh, it's been a recurring theme throughout human history. And uh, we want to leave you guys with this jewel of knowledge from old Sterling himself. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill, and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own, for the children and the children yet unborn. And the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the Twilight Zone. So, yeah, I'm getting off on this one. Um, Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, We uh, got any shout outs, guys? 
I'm going to give a shout out to, you know, the Scott bros and Adam for uh, having me on the show. I'm an actual true fan. I listen to all of them when I do my laundry or do meal preps, you know. <laughs> but uh, I'm give a big shout out to the, the boys back in VA, uh, Snake Mountain Revival. If you guys want to give them a check out on Instagram, at Snake Mountain Revival. Good psychedelic band from VA. As always, slide in those DMs on Instagram, podcast from outer space, or shoot us an email, podcast from outer space at gmail.com. Still got those stickers. So holla at your boy if you need some. But yeah, other than that, um, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode for you guys. Submit for your approval. Jed, it's been real good to have you on the show and uh, to the listeners. Oh, yeah. I, I, I want to thank Jed, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, do it. Yeah, I want to also... I thought everybody was going around saying their bit. Thanks to Jed for uh, stopping by, you know, for all the support and um, for giving us some content for this episode. Um, pleasure having you on. So long, and thanks for all the fish. Blown around the world in a plane. I've settled revolutions in Spain. And the North Pole I have charted. Still, I can't get started with you.